of Ask a Physical Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Tannis Kitchener, physical therapist, and you're joining us with KDNK Carbondale Public Radio. Today our guest is Dr. Tom Walters. Tom is a board-certified orthopedic physical therapist and strength and conditioning specialist who's based in Santa Barbara, California. In addition to his clinical practice, he also runs one of the world's largest social media accounts dedicated to physical rehab. This is at Rehab Science on Instagram. You can also find him on Facebook. From 2012 to 2019, he served as a full-time kinesiology professor at Westmont College and taught courses including biomechanics, therapeutic exercise, and pain science. Dr. Walters graduated from Montana State University with his Bachelor of Science in Exercise Science and then earned his Doctor of Physical Therapy. Afterwards, he completed a residency in orthopedic manual physical therapy and a fellowship in lower quarter functional biomechanics. He's just released his first book titled Rehab Science, How to Overcome Pain and Heal from Injury. I've asked Tom on the show today to specifically discuss pain science as this is a shared human experience and we're constantly learning more about how it presents in the body and how we can treat it. So uh, without any further ado, welcome Tom. Thanks so much. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Let's start with how pain is generated in our being. Big question. Yeah, so, yeah, totally. I mean, such a such a great topic to cover, right, because at some point in our lives, most of us are affected by pain, and I think in the clinical world and in the research, we're learning so much more about what pain is, and, you know, one of the major bodies that studies this is the International Association for the Study of Pain. And I really like their definition because it talks about pain as being this um, this uncomfortable sensory experience that is associated with actual or potential tissue damage. And I think that's really important for people to understand is that most of us, when we have pain, most of us uh, sort of automatically think that if there's pain in my body, that it means something's injured. You know, and, we're, and you and I, are, as physical therapists, are talking about the musculoskeletal system, so... Of course, you could have pains that come from an organ, like a heart referring to somewhere in your body. But we're mostly thinking about, you know, you you tweaked your back or you, you know, you woke up and your neck is hurt and you have pain. And most people will think, well, that means something's injured. Some tissue in my body is injured. And I think what's really neat about this uh, more current research and understanding of pain is that, yes, of course, you can have pain if you injured a tissue. Like if you sprain your ankle, you twist your ankle and you stretch the ligaments, that's a great example of where tissue injury can match up with pain. But we also know that pain can be produced when there's potential damage. So if your brain perceives or thinks that something harmful is going to happen to you, it can actually produce pain just to protect you. Um, Ultimately, we know pain is about survival. So I think this is such an important thing from that definition, kind of understanding pain 100% of the time comes from your brain, and it can either be associated with actual damage, or it could be a situation where your brain thinks that you uh, may be damaged, something could happen that hurts you. So pain is a threat assessment by the brain, which may or may not be reflective of a direct injury or tissue damage. Exactly. Yes. And so... Let's talk a little bit about where the brain gets the signals that might be perceived as a threat or not. 
Yeah, so uh, your brain is going to look at lots of different inputs. So we talk about this kind of neural matrix concept when it comes to pain, and so you have inputs and outputs. And so your brain is going to take all that incoming sensory information. A lot of it's going to be kind of sensory in nature, visual information, so using vision to look at the environment, what's going on. Um, of course, think your hearing things in the environment, um, touch, you know, the receptors in your joints will tell you about where you are in space. All that information is going to come in that you might think of as more sensory-based. And then you'll have other inputs like your beliefs, uh, your kind of current stress, uh, stress state, anxiety, things that are inputs kind of coming from your endocrine system. You have uh, your thoughts and beliefs, um, what you maybe you were raised in a certain way or you have certain beliefs that practitioners have told your friends and family and you or things you've read online and so you're coming into that situation with memories, thoughts, beliefs, your emotions, and then all that sensor information in your brain is going to take all that and weigh it and decide whether or not pain is an appropriate output. Pain is just one of those outputs. You could have movement as an output. You can have other stress responses. So pain is just one of those outputs that your brain can choose to create. Yeah. So I want to come back to, in a moment, um, so much of what you touched on, your experience, your history, that might look different from person to person. Um, But before that, I just want to dial it down to more of an anatomical thing. When we were in PT school, well, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we graduated around the same kind of time frame. We learned, I learned that there were nociceptive fibers. And in my brain at the time, that translated to pain fibers. So there were nerves responsible for sending the signal of pain to our brain, C fibers and, and a couple of other ones. Um, and now we've kind of recategorized how we're thinking about that as nociceptive fibers are, are a type of sensation that gets translated up to the brain and then our brain decides what to do with them. So the nociceptive fibers are mechanical, you know, compression, movement thermal, which is temperature, and or chemical, which can be from inflammatory markers um, or other things going on in the body that might chemically stimulate a nerve. Sound fair? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think, yeah, in physical therapy education, when you and I finished, they didn't understand as much about pain. So we thought about it, like you said, as these nociceptive fibers sort of relayed pain, that pain came from the tissue and went to the brain, which is a very old sort of way of thinking about how pain happens. But yeah, now we see that those nociceptive fibers, those free nerve endings, um, transmit danger messages, really. Nociception literally translates to danger reception. So those fibers will transmit that kind of information, high threshold, you squish your finger, it's a compression thing, you... um, you know, it could be like a tension, a pull on something that hits a certain threshold. You have to hit a certain level of stimulus, and then those nociceptive fibers will be activated, and they'll send a danger message to the brain. And in some cases, the brain might decide pain is appropriate here. I'm going to output pain to protect the person from further damage, or this isn't a big deal. Maybe I just output a movement program, and they shift a little bit or do something different, and that's all that's needed, or maybe nothing happens. So yeah, just having a nociceptive fiber being activated doesn't necessarily mean you'll have pain. Mm-hmm. The action potential is really interesting, and I think about it as um, 
let's see, what's a good analogy? If you're filling a cup and really your goal, you, you've got a cup inside a bowl and really the goal is to fill the bowl with water, but you have to start with the cup. And the nerve, you know, once the cup fills all the way and then starts to spill over into the bowl, that's when you start to fill the bowl. And that could be considered kind of the action potential as the threshold of the cup that starts to then pour over. I don't know. Do you have a better analogy? No, that's a pretty good one. It's funny. I've never really thought about uh, an analogy for this thing. It's, you know, I think it's super interesting to know, but often with patients in the clinic, I don't find myself often talking about action potentials, you know, we know that pain education can really help people who are in pain because it can make it less threatening when people understand it. But this this uh, little element, I don't uh, end up talking a lot about. Yeah, I don't know that lots of people want to get into the nitty gritty, but with a somewhat educational show where we can build from there, I think it's helpful. And maybe when you find a patient that needs some extra, like they kind of want to know the, the smaller details, then you can guide them to the the on-demand show of this, which would be great. What I think would be fun to tie the action potential to now that we have an understanding of what that means, that there's a, there's a threshold you have to meet before you end up with that signal is uh, like an X, Y diagram or a chart where you have a horizontal line. And let's say it goes, uh, you have your Y line, your vertical line, and let's say it goes from zero to 10. And we're generally operating at kind of a living baseline of our nervous system. And then there's going to be another horizontal line somewhere above or below that that's your threshold. And once you cross that action potential or that threshold, then you are going to receive, perceive pain. So this is where I start my pain education with folks because like you, I don't usually go into the, the nitty gritty of the, the action potential. Sure. But we talk about this. And um, because this is where patients can affect it, right? If they can either decrease their, their baseline living mean in a good way, meaning like, um, so the higher your, your horizontal line is on your baseline living, meaning the more stress you're under. So everything that adds to that would be lack of sleep, uh, relationship stress, work stress, financial stress, uh, physical stress. And the higher you bump that baseline up to, the closer you are to your threshold of perceiving pain. And now all of a sudden it takes the smallest input for your brain to say danger and experience pain versus yep, if you're living agree more yeah right. yeah it's such a good way of teaching this i mean i think on that zero to ten scale we think okay maybe zero is sort of uh, uh, maybe unrealistic in some ways maybe nobody's at zero but zero is the state where you're well below that you know maybe up around an eight let's say an eight on that scale you've got kind of like a pain line where yeah. you might experience pain there but Maybe we know, right? You add all these other things to the picture, like a lack of sleep, maybe a diet that's more pro-inflammatory in nature. Maybe you have really stressful life events, like divorce or a child died or something like that. You start stacking these things up. We know all these systems are intertwined. Pain, the pain, pain in the musculoskeletal system isn't simply just about the musculoskeletal system. So you start stacking all those things together. You start creeping up closer to that level eight level, you know, level where you're more likely to have pain. And if you already have pain and you have those things going on, you're more likely then to develop a chronic or persistent pain state. So I agree with you that I think it's really helpful for people to know that these things can all sort of be cumulative in nature of these factors and can either push you towards starting to experience pain or if you already have it, maybe you had something like a simple mechanical injury 
I've had this actually happen in the past. A simple mechanical injury becomes more chronic in nature because of these things, lack of sleep and stress. It ends up can end up making the nervous system more sensitive. And then you have a pain state that is no longer reflective of actually what's going on in your body, and it's not helpful. Right. Um, I was just reading something. Oh, what was it? Um, it was a factor of eight. If somebody was under a particular type of stress in their life, and I might be able to find it while we're chatting, that they were eight times likely for that injury to turn into chronic pain. I think it was specifically about back pain than if they weren't well, undergoing, yeah, undergoing that stressful part of life. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, you see some of these factors now, like depression, for instance, is more tied. And I have to go back and look at this research, but I think that factor in particular, depression is more tied and related to the development of chronic back pain than any physical factor. You know, most people want to think, oh, my hamstrings are tight, my pelvis is an anterior tilt, or my core is weak, and really look at all those physical factors. Something like your depression and your mental health is more can be more associated with the development of chronic low back symptoms versus any other physical factor. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the studies, I believe Adrian Lowe did, where they did, it was low back specific, I believe it was for folks who had chronic back pain, and they did a functional MRI of their brain where they asked them to do a motion that always elicits their back pain, and these are folks who had already failed PT to reduce their pain, and they could see in the in the functional MRI, what parts of their brain lit up with a pain response. And then they did uh, pain education. I can't remember how long. It was the same day, so it was probably no more than four hours. It might have been as little as like a half hour. They did pain, pain education, like what we're talking about, repeated the exact same motion in the functional brain MRI, and the, the light up of the pain centers in the brain or the, the pain response was significantly decreased. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we have so much research on pain education, how helpful it is. And just like you said, you know, you can use functional MRI to look at what they call the neurosignature pattern, that this pattern of brain centers that light up when someone has pain. And they say it's like a fingerprint. It's different for everyone. We used to think that there was just one pain center in the brain, but now it looks mm-hmm. like everybody has a little bit different pattern, and that is called your neurosignature. So if you have back pain, you have a neurosignature that's completely unique to you for your back pain, you can look at that on a functional MRI. And then like you said, implement pain education and see a change in that. It really, you, you and I both know, but for so many patients, everybody varies a little bit in this, but for so many people, pain creates fear and anxiety. You're worried about what have I done? What What's injured in my body? Am I going to make it worse? Is it going to mean I have to have surgery? Or I can't do this thing, these things that I enjoy in life. How's it going to affect my job? Like it just starts this whole cascade of kind of uncertainty and what's going to happen. And, and uh, once people learn more about pain, and I think especially these ideas that pain doesn't always mean injury, and most things in the musculoskeletal system get better just with time. And when people sort of understand, like you said, some of the, even though it might be surprising, sometimes understanding things like action potentials and how our nerves transmit things and nociceptors and how pain is generated and what it all means can really help decrease threat. And at the end of the day, if you can decrease that threat, then usually pain goes down and those centers in the brain are less active. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to steal one of Adrian Lowe's analogies, and that's that our, let's see, the way that we perceive pain, so our neurological system that's related to pain perception, 
is similar to the alarm on a house. And so ideally you want your alarm to go off if somebody breaks a window, somebody throws a rock through a window, but you don't want your alarm to go off if a leaf blows by the window. You don't want your alarm not to go off if somebody breaks the window. So there's that fine balance and folks who suffer from chronic pain after the injury, if they even suffered an initial injury goes away, are stuck in that heightened sense of, of alert where a leaf blowing by is lighting up the alarm system. So we need to figure out how to hijack that to bring it back down to a normal level. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I always love that analogy. I think the alarm system one is a great one. And yeah, just like you said, you're, you're, you're basically trying to help them understand that the response from their pain system is overblown and not appropriate based on, you know, if they had an initial injury that we know we have time frame on how long most of these tissues take to heal. So you're working to try and desensitize the system. And I like to, because I have, my parents are both in the mental health field in psychiatry. It's very similar to a lot of mental health disorders. And I think, you know, in P2, we talk a lot about graded exposure and as a method for desensitizing the system. And in physical therapy, we use graded exposure in, in terms of, we look at it in terms of movement, whereas like a psychiatrist might look at it in terms of your thoughts, you know, and something that scares you. So, you know, I would think, and this example comes up in other places, but, you know, if you're scared of snakes and you go to see a therapist, they're not just going to hand you a snake on the first session because that, of course, is very threatening and going to trigger you. If you have pain bending over in your low back to pick things up, well, we might try to incorporate movements that are flexion-based for your spine and other contexts to basically almost kind of take, like, baby steps to desensitize the system and get you back to doing something like maybe you want to deadlift at the gym or you just want to be able to pick your kids up or something and that creates this excruciating back pain. Well, then we can use those graded steps to help desensitize the system over time, just like you might do if you had a fear um, of something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that analogy. Is there something else that you can think of besides like back pain? Yeah, I mean, the spinal pain ones are so good because mm-hmm. so many of those, both neck and, and low back pain, often have, you know, they're such good examples where they uh, often don't have a real obvious traumatic injury, you know, that just the person just started hurting, um, you know, and they can recall being stressed out or something happening at that time of their life when the pain sort of began, but we see it in so many things, right? Now, I mean, even disorders like patellofemoral pain mm-hmm. have, kneecap-related pain have a huge psychosocial element. I mean, I think anytime you start getting out past that three- to six-month window of something hurting, you have to start looking at the patterns and behavior of that pain. And, of course, you could have a mechanical thing that you're just flaring up and it lasts a long time, but if it starts to go past that time window, you have to start looking at it and thinking, you know, is this pain actually a good representation of the stress that's being put on my body, or does it seem like it's some exaggerated response? And maybe I've got to try and think about this differently. Maybe it's not just about, you know, making the area stronger and more flexible. Maybe I've got to think about other things in my life, like my sleep and nutrition and stress. And for so many of those people, addressing those things, it's way more important than the physical factors. And I mean, I think this is where physical therapy really is a lot of therapy. And I didn't appreciate that coming out of school. I don't think they talked about that a lot, but the relationship and being able to kind of coach people through and 
build a build that rapport and that relationship. Um, I just think there is so much therapy and physical therapy, especially for the people who have a system that's become a little more sensitive. One hundred percent. And it ties into like low back pain. Spine pain is one so common. So many of us experience at some point in our life. Two, it seems to be more likely to become chronic if it's not addressed. Three, a lot of people end up getting imaging. And you and I know, and I've talked about it on the show occasionally, that imaging will often show up structural structural abnormalities or changes in a spine if you're over the age of like 25. And so then people also start to believe that there is something physically damaged in their spine. And then that can kind of reverberate with the pain cycle. Yeah, it's such a tricky thing, right? You know, I tell a lot of patients that if you're in England, for example, you can't even get an MRI for back pain until you've done six to eight weeks of physical therapy because they know that if people see an image, oftentimes there's probably going to be some change, an age-related change, something on there. But as soon as someone sees some structural change and they see, you know, a lot of times the words that are used on MRI reports that radiologists, that people use in the medical community, they sound threatening. And once you see that stuff, we see that outcomes are poor mm-hmm. with rehab and time. And, you know, and it pushes people towards the development of chronic pain. So, yeah, I, I think there's luckily been a lot of good education um, from PTs out there in this space now trying to help people understand that, hey, we have all these studies where we take asymptomatic people, just pull people off the street, take 100 people, 1,000 people, go in and put them in an MRI, wherever it's at, their shoulder, their hip, their low back, their neck, almost somewhere between 30 to 50% of the population who are asymptomatic, who have no pain, have these things that are would normally be classified as injuries. They have labral tears in their hip and shoulder, they have meniscus tears, they have disc herniations in their neck and low back, and these are people who don't have any pain. Right. So we just have to realize that imaging is one piece of the puzzle, and it's great to have. Like, it, it, at times it can be really useful, um, but it doesn't always mean you're going to have pain. And in a lot of cases, we know as PTs, it doesn't actually change much of what we do in rehab because we're really looking at what are your symptoms and what's your function like, and let's try to make those better. I don't care so much about what's on that image. It's just a static picture. It doesn't not dynamic it doesn't represent the whole person yeah I don't know about you well I also appreciate imaging when it's when it's done but often if it's not going to change my plan of care based on what it shows you know I usually say hold off unless we get to a point where we're not making adequate uh, progress but if they do come in with an image before I've done my initial evaluation I typically unless it's something I'm concerned might be dangerous for the patient to do movement I'll do my whole evaluation before I look at the imaging so it doesn't sway my assessment which is a great way to go because it can totally bias you and then you're just looking for that thing. Yeah. So obviously we know that there are times when you have physical injury or damaged tissue that are relevant and should be showing signs of pain. So you think that like the three to six month mark is a good time frame for people to start investigating whether it's turned into chronic pain and are there any other signs that you would say, okay, this is what we'd look for to look at. Is it correct representation of of physical issues going on is it over exaggerated and is it now becoming chronic i think yeah those types of factors and i've even you know if you look at the definition for chronic pain right you'll see this kind of three to six months um window mentioned as when if pain goes on that long that it 
in that time frame, most things have healed fairly well and that, you know, it may be more likely that there's a mismatch in the pain experience and what's happening in the tissue. I sometimes think I would probably push out more to a year and tell people because there's so many things. I mean, I've had a lot of different tendinopathies and injuries that took me a year, eight months to a year for them to resolve. And I think Same. Yeah. I didn't worry about it because I know what I know. And I was like, oh, I'm just flaring this thing up. You have to think about not just the time, right? The time is one thing, but like you alluded to, what are the characteristics of the pain? Like if the pain is provoked with very clear mechanical things, an on-off position, like you know, okay, I've got this pain right at my buttock. I have this right now, I proximal hamstring tendinopathy. I know that if I go into deep hip flexion or I sit on a hard seat, it will trigger that. But if I don't do those things, it goes away pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so there's a clear on-off. There's a clear on-off kind of mechanical thing that I can identify. The pain stays pretty much that spot. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't change over time. It's not really unpredictable. It hasn't like spread out, and you'll see that with chronic pain, right? Where it kind of, it can move around, or the area gets larger, or it's it's more vague. And I think you want to try and in physical therapy, you know, we a lot of times are looking at clusters of tests and symptoms to kind of figure out what's going on with someone. And I think if you're someone out there who has pain and it is very specific to one location, you can you can very specifically find positions or activities that turn it on and turn it off. It doesn't move around. That's probably more likely. It's probably less likely that that's a chronic pain. It's probably just more something local to that area that might be taking longer to heal or maybe you're aggravating it with things in your life. We know in physical therapy, besides exercises and manual therapy and things, that behavior modification is so important. You've got to find those things in your life that are triggering it and modify them or temporarily eliminate to let the tissue calm down and heal. Right. On the flip side, if it is a pain that's like spreading and it's, it's vague and it, it's not, it's unpredictable, you can't identify things that turn on or off. Yeah, that sounds more like in the chronic kind of pain category. That's not, it, it, it's not so. Um, you know, it's not so clear cut in terms of mechanical forces and things, um, turn it on and off. And so I think, think about all those variables. If, if it feels like it's not very specific, it's not turning on, turning off, then chat with your provider about whether it could be becoming more chronic pain and then you change your strategy. So on that note, you all have been listening to myself, Dr. Tannis Kitchener, and Dr. Tom Walters, PTs, about pain science and the transition from acute to chronic pain. And we are going to have to continue this conversation because it's so good and we need to talk about um, kind of some of the cortical changes that happen with chronic pain and the juice of it is how do we treat it and how do we help our loved ones that are having it. So tune in for next month as well as look at us um, on the podcast on demand once it airs, and you can pull up part one here and part two. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. I love it. Let's keep it going. Yeah. paycheck before I came to town, but I reached into my pocket, found three twenties and a ten. It feels so good, feeling good again.